0: Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist, oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... This week on Plenary Session, I'm joined by Professor Francois Boulot. Professor Boulot is the head of UGI at UCL, University College London. He is a card-carrying geneticist, scientist, pandemic researcher, and one of the most excellent people on Twitter to follow for SARS-CoV-2. You won't want to miss this discussion. And during the discussion, I screw up his title because there's too many UGs and Cs and Ls. I can't get it straight. Sorry about that. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at VPRASADMDMPH. Check out the YouTube channel, VinayPRASADMDMPH. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on plenary session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. I'm back here in plenary session joined via Zoom by Dr. Francois Ballot. Uh, Dr. Ballot is a professor at UGL in London. Um, he is a renowned uh, geneticist and a astute uh, commentator on all things COVID and um, people on Twitter will will know him well. Um, and it's a real pleasure to get to talk to you. So thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you. That's very kind <laughs> and I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you.
0: It's, it's really my honor, um, you know, uh, one of the things that gets, uh, talked a lot about, um, in Twitter is who is quote unquote an expert. And I guess, um, when it comes to you and anything you say, uh, no one can dispute the fact that you've had a long and important career in genomics, um, and, and done very seminal work in biology. Um, and you spent a lot of time thinking on these issues. Um, uh, so with that said, let me, let me just pick your brain a little bit. Um, you know, um. I, I wonder if I, if I might ask you um, to just describe a little bit about um, you know um, how how you first uh, got interested in in SARS-CoV two your work on on prior sequencing of viruses um, how did you sort of enter this um, back in, in in at the end of twenty nineteen and early twenty twenty. It's
1: an interesting question. So obviously our work is on genomics of pathogens. Mm-hmm. both bacteria and viruses so it felt quite natural to work on, on SARS-CoV-2 um, I have a background myself uh, in um, pandemic mitigation if you want I worked at Imperial College in um, <laughs> with Neil Ferguson yes. in his team um, so yes I had this background and, and initially I was lukewarm about the whole group going into covid-19 research because i uh, we we our group was very much on fundamental research and it, we did this kind of slow steady science and i felt a bit unsure whether i wanted actually to push my team into that and i really let people decide and very clearly rapidly emerged that everyone was super keen i Mm -hmm. to try to get involved to try to do something to try to help and and also just to to make sense of things Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then Mm -hmm. it kind of happened fairly naturally and um, a wonderful colleague who's a former postdoc lucy van dorp who started working and and then it just naturally went there and um, we we tried to contribute to the science
0: and you've done you know, really, um, terrific work and, and been a sort of terrific, I think, steward of the public conversation, which has, um, you know, um, Gone off the deep end. I, I just want to say, you know, I want to start by by saying uh, there was a there was a funny tweet recently, which was, um, you know, I, I'm trying to find it in your in your in your profile, but basically uh, it said somebody said that you know there are these new variants of of SARS-CoV-2, um, and you know we don't know if the vaccine is going to cover it. So this was a few days ago. Now we have some data from Moderna, and it looks like the vaccine um, is gener- generating neutralizing antibodies against these um these strains. But a few days ago they didn't know, and they said you know it, it's very likely the vaccine doesn't work. It's very likely we're going to need more restrictions. It's very likely we're going to be dealing with this in four years, five years from now. And you tweeted it and said, you know, you're not a real expert unless you say the vaccines are definitely not going to work. We're going to be dealing with this for a hundred years. Um, you know, you you took it to the next level. But what you were getting at is this narrative that there is something out there. I, I can't put my finger on it in the zeitgeist where it's always the most fearful, most hesitant, most cautious um, view is the view that is mass amplified um, is that your observation and I wonder if you might talk about it a bit yeah
1: um, there's obviously a lot of fear and anger and um, and, and there's also some despair <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and many feel that if you're not ridiculously cautious or even Extremely negative, uh, you might not be taken seriously. Yes. And, and sure, it feels at times there's a competition of who's who's most who's coming up with the most <laughs> pessimistic, most insanely negative take on anything. And obviously, there's a lot to worry about. Uh-huh. But I just don't think it's healthy. Yes. And I see my role as trying to be cautious, but also trying to calm down a little bit. And and just for one thing, let's say there's really no benefit in being miserable and panicking more than needed. Mm-hmm. Because let's say, okay, if things go wrong, then it will make us only more more miserable if, if if we panic about it. And if things can be kind of controlled, mitigated, can be dealt with, then obviously panicking is the least. Useful reaction, then we need to keep level-headed and, and deal with things. So I, I really cannot see any benefit panic. The only thing is it just makes people more miserable than they should be. Yeah. And they seem enough to feel miserable. However. so
0: the the only comp- benefit I see is that it is a, a very good way of amassing a lot of people to follow you on Twitter. And I think that is one of the core defects which we can come to at the end. But I just give one example. Tom Frieden, who is the former um, head of the the CDC here in uh, the United States, he tweeted, quote, COVID is evolving in weeks and months the way flu evolves in years. Ominous. Um, This is a claim, I think, about the the rate with which the virus is undergoing mutation and new strains. Um, You tweet, um, this is uh, what a bizarre claim. This is factually and demonstrably incorrect. Uh, It is a bizarre. I mean, it's just on the face of it. Not true. Isn't that right?
1: I don't think it's true. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. and, and, and yeah. you can really think about it the way you want in terms of, let's say, changes to the genome, change, you know, changes in immune escape. It's just not
0: true by any measure. And, yeah.
1: And I find it intriguing because I, I, I don't, maybe I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's necessarily just a motivation to amass followers or glory or whatever i, I think it's more some kind of dynamic that 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 people just feel fearful mm, and, and it, it, it there's some kind of vicious circle and amplification that um people with a large, large following actually tend to be kind of <laughs> dormma being even more negative
0: yes it's, I think that's it it's a I mean, it's a feedback loop they are fearful exactly. and then they're rewarded for that fear even if they're not aware of it by the likes and the retweets and that fuels more fear yeah yes but I I,
1: I don't think it's yeah I think it's an interesting dynamic
0: <laughs> let's talk for a second about mitigation efforts um I recently asked people to generate a list of things that we have done globally to try to reduce um the transmission of SARS-CoV-2 and they're things that make sense um you know um restrictions on large gatherings indoors um closing some indoor places like businesses that seem less essential closing pubs closing restaurants that are indoors um trying to spread people out um wearing universal cloth masks um And then there are things that are very small. Um, There are ski resorts that um, are closing some hills. There are places where you can't use a toboggan. I don't know what a toboggan has to do. There are places where they take the rims off the basketball hoops and the nets off the tennis courts. Because God forbid you play tennis with somebody, um, you know, standing 40 40 feet away. Um, So they're all things big and small. Um, Do you have any sense? And and there's been a meta-analysis, but I think we can talk about the limitations to that. Um, There's been some analyses, but which of these things make a difference which don't make a difference and how do we know and how will we know to be honest it's i don't
1: think we know that much let's say some measures really make sense in principle let's say if you're gathering in a closed room Mm -hmm. uh, poorly ventilated then yes obviously slightly transmission is likely increased then many of these measures don't necessarily make that much sense. And I don't think we have much evidence which ones really work, which ones don't. And there's also a wonderful cultural element. For instance, I'm I'm based in Switzerland. And one of the few things that are still open are ski resorts. Ah, Yes. But then there was a time where in the U.S. in some places gun shops were open, and <laughs> one of the last places in the U.K. to 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 <laughs> close were pubs. say <laughs> yes. schools have been closed forever, but pubs were still open. So th- there's a very interesting cultural <laughs> dimension to what people feel. Meeting. or measures.
0: <laughs> it's people, people, it. people told me that um, for a while in the UK, you could go to a pub, but only if you ate a substantive meal. And then the debate became how much food is a substantive meal? Um, that's... Was, uh, yeah. yeah.
1: That was probably a pack of crisps or something like
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it does (laughs) highlight the absurdity. Um, You know, I've looked at some of these studies. There they've been several now um, published and I think in 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 decent journals that that (laughs) aim to tease apart the relative contribution of these different things. Um, But methodologically, it is very difficult um, when nations um, as they see caseloads rise, they implement more and more things often together, often in concert with public messaging that says, holy shit, bad things are happening, which changes behavior dramatically. And at the end of it, you know, you know, when you put a lot of variables that have a lot of, um, um, shared information, or you know, we who do regression, collinearity, they, they, they segregate together in data sets, and you do simple computer-based regression. Um, it's very likely that one model gives you this is the best thing, another model gives you that's the best thing, um, but it's not telling you a truth claim. These are two things that are, 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 are wedded together hand in glove. Um, this is something that you understand as a genomics person because this is something you deal with in genomics. Um, I wonder if you might talk about it and how you think about it, yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, I think some of these studies could be criticized. I think they're often quite elegant methodologically, let's say from the kind of uh, treatment of the data, they can be questioned. So I, I think the first, one, first problem is quite of these studies actually only looked at measures up to the end of the first wave. So yes. they are extremely strong confounders like seasonality. Um, in many places. And then, as you mentioned, um, it's, you cannot really disentangle the different interventions because they were essentially taken at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I would say another important factor is obviously governments can impose things or not impose things, but then people do whatever people want to do or feel they should do. And that's one very interesting, um, observation with lockdowns, yes. so, so cases tend to go down, or at least let's say the, the, the transmission tends to go down actually before the lockdown is enforced. But probably the announcement of the lockdown has a strong effect, yes, psychologically exactly. yes, this yes. probably pushes people to social distance. So it's so difficult actually to, to disentangle these things. and. Well, as we all know, or many of us know probably the, the the measures that have been most controversial and most toxic are about schools, and yeah. um, we're we'll probably talking in ten year time was just talking about whether it is a meaningful measure in terms of suppression of transmission or not. And I'm moderately optimistic we'll ever reach um, some kind of consensus.
0: Yes, I think on the schools, um, you know, this was a great example. There was um, a study that said closing schools is the second best thing you could do. But of course, by schools, they meant everything from children preschool. To college students, it's all lumped together in this analysis, which boggles the mind because we know the properties and the rate with which the virus is spread is drastically different in these very different settings. Um, and also they serve very, drastically different social functions. Um, You know, as sympathetic as I am to college kids missing a semester, my sympathies are deeper with many kids who are missing early childhood development, um especially kids who have no other outside opportunity. So I think the way in which society values these things are different and yet they're lumped together in this model. Um, Somebody tweeted that and they said, new study shows, you know, breaking news, schools, uh, horrible, and they should all be closed and they're killing everybody. Um, And then you tweeted um, rather nicely that, you know, You felt like it wasn't the strongest study on the topic. And there was a study from Germany that was quite elegant. It took advantage of a few properties that in Germany, um, the summer holiday is staggered. Some schools have it earlier than other schools, and they go later than other schools. And that staggered summer holiday is absolutely independent of the restrictions placed. I mean, there's no reason, you know, it had to be there. It happened to be before. It's the classic natural experiment. And when these authors ran this analysis, they find um, rather soberingly that the closure of school is not associated with a reduction in transmission. And the reopening of school is not associated with a a re-expansion of transmission. Um, It was extremely, I think, um, non-anxious, not anxious data. It was published um, in Enber, a technical publication which may have not drawn as much fanfare. Um, Its paper is long. It's 80 pages long. It's an economics analysis. um, So it might not be read as much as sort of a four-page paper. I I wonder if you might talk about this for a second. Um, You know, people are happy to grab onto the data that supports their narrative um but in this case i think it's clear this germany paper is is a stronger paper yes i think to me it's by
1: far the best uh, analysis of school closures and and it it now <laughs> i might be biased because i'm obviously not a fan of school closures right. but as as you i think it has two strengths first it's not just it's looking both as, at school closures but then reopenings the in 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 jordan and the other yeah, thing you mentioned is in Germany, it's very, they it, it, it start at a very different time. So it's really staggered over, I think, five, six weeks, something like that. So it, it really allows to disentangle the, this effect. Now you could say it's wonderful. And this shows that actually schools don't contribute to transmission, actually, slightly you could say counterintuitively or slightly puzzlingly, um, school opening actually led to decrease of transmission. And you also explained that actually in Germany, at least, in schools, um, the kids probably transmit less to each other than if they were just on their own at home or right. whatever. Right. But again, the, this... It, i'm not sure how portable this study is to other places mm. like in in many countries actually germany actually has to be really commended for the measures they took let's say they there are relatively few kids per classroom they invested quite heavily into ventilation into all sorts of measures so this study clearly which is the best by far yes there's something very important which might seem counterintuitive to many but it really applies to Germany. <laughs> now you could say other countries should should implement the same measures and might have the same benefit. But it's it's again there's a, again a level of complication, <laughs> and very few of us actually are now prepared to accept that the world is complex and you cannot just talk, let's say sure New Zealand got rid of the virus, so why didn't we? <laughs> no, it's complicated. It's New Zealand. That's the UK. That's the US. That's Switzerland. So and and obviously the debate would benefit a lot of people engaged with a little bit with the complexity of the world rather so than pushing some agenda with some just random papers or so random <laughs>
0: <laughs> just cherry pick paper you're right no i think and so the, i mean you you've sort of led into this topic um there's a group of nations that have done well um some of them are nations that have taken and by Dunwell, I've said they have lower case um, rates than other places New Zealand, Australia, um, Singapore, uh, Taiwan, uh, but also some poorer nations Vietnam, Cambodia, Southeast Asia. That, I mean, they do all tend to be geographically not too far from each other. Okay, you yeah, put it finger no, up. All right. Yeah, go on. No forget
1: the African nations. No one mentions them.
0: But, yes, uh, that's true. The African is... nations have done well. Um, <laughs> the explanation I've heard for the African nations is that the median age is quite low, same as India. In, um, okay. Um, but I, I guess what I'm getting at is, but, but Germany is a nation that did similar things to what was done in New, in New Zealand, um, but was not able to achieve the same. France was is a nation that done similar things. I, I guess one question. Is and I don't know where the science is on this, but you, but you might know, is, um, you know, when it comes to why nations do better than others, I think there's three cl- categories of reasons. One, it's, we did something different, so the actions of human beings. Two is, yeah. there's something different about biology. The um, people there have some intrinsic immunity that do- people don't have, or there's something about the virus there? There's something different about biology or the, or the structures of societies in those places. It's not what people are doing, it's what the system is. And then the third reason is luck. Um, stochastic, st- stochastic, um, you know, randomness. Um, do you have a sense? Um, you know, do you have an explanation for for these nations, or how do you think about these three factors? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I, I would probably stress that there are other features. Okay. Like- Geography, seasonality. Yes. So okay. Vietnam is essentially landlocked between neighbors that have essentially no case. And I think we should not underestimate the effect of seasonality. So mm-hmm. SARS-CoV-2 can transmit in any any condition, but there are obviously climatic conditions, and that's mostly cold and dry, and probably a little UV where it does better. So I think in the I think there are some advantages. And for instance, I think New Zealand and Australia benefited a lot from a climate which made it easier to, to control. Because mm-hmm. other countries, as you mentioned, Germany and actually Italy took even stronger measures in Spain yes. took stronger measures than, than 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 New Zealand, Australia without any success. Yes. I think that's partly down to to let's say climatic conditions. Then sure luck. And luck not yeah. always <laughs> Just and and there's a lot of stochasticity in in epidemics. Just one recent example: there's this so-called UK variant, so this B one one seven. Yes, um, it's gone up in frequency really radically, yes. very very fast over recent years. But it's been around for a long time. Yes, it's been at very low frequency in the UK since essentially September yes. and before. Okay, yeah, it's been picked up. Nothing happened. It was just here very low frequency, suddenly started growing. And clearly, there there are, there's a strong stochasticity. And some countries were just more lucky than others. And I think the initial, the, uh, the, the, the the extent of the initial, um, epidemic, like, for instance, Italy was very, very, very hard. And let's say there was a lot of in circulation yeah it was too late <laughs> whereas other places got seeded by one or two let's say transmission chains and they could control it and and then the genetics that's interesting so yeah. in the early yeah. stages of the epidemic um we really had a situation where the whole genetic diversity of SARS-CoV-2 was present essentially anywhere let's say you Pick a strain from Australia, one from New Zealand, or two from Australia, two from New Zealand, two from the US. Essentially, they were completely, you could just pick it randomly from the whole diversity. I see. And since then, with, with border closures and people moving less, yes, there's been some kind of population structure building up. Let's say you see now lineages that you tend to find more in some places, less in others, but then still, Say, they, for instance, this so-called UK variant is now present in at least 60 countries. So yes. And then there's the big mystery about um, human, um, the human genetic components. And say, are some people more susceptible? or some people more um, prone to, 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 to develop severe symptoms? I'm not sure the evidence is very strong for that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of efforts with GWAS for both susceptibility and, and severe, um, bad outcomes, death, yeah. whatever. They didn't pick up anything super convincing. Let's I say see. a few rarely used that might play a role, but I, I doubt there's a very strong genetic complement. I see. As, as it, it, sure, it feels like a perfect explanation. Sure. Oh, yes, in Asia, they, they benefited from <laughs> their genetics, or whatever. But I don't think it's the case. Also, it's quite interesting if you look at, um, for instance, both in the US and the UK. If you stratify, let's say, for ethnicity, yes, um, you find, for instance, Chinese people are not are equal at risk than the whites in, in the UK. For instance, I'm saying is true in the US. Actually, even slightly more at risk. So, it's clearly not the case.
0: Then and, and, yeah. One thing <laughs> no, I, I was just going to ask age. What, I mean, the, the the interaction between age and bad outcomes is tremendous. Oh. Um, you know, lo, on the log scale. I mean, wh- is this a property of other viruses? Um, is this this it seems to me the most exceptional age gradient I've ever seen. Um, and and what and is there a genetic basis for the age gradient? I-
1: I don't think there's an interaction with genetics. I I, I think actually it's extremely constant. So let's say, and there was a paper in Nature. which was quite well done. They estimated that the risk of dying was about ten thousand times higher in the old eighties than in children. Yeah. That's ten thousand. Ten thousand <laughs> times. Yeah. And I think, as far as I know, it's completely unique. Yes. Um, I, I'm not aware of any other virus. That has such a strong age risk factor. Now we say that, but what we should not forget is that we have lots of respiratory viruses in circulation that we generally consider to be benign, harmless. But the impact on elderly, in particular in care homes, is not completely negligible. Mm-hmm. So but until now probably no one really cared what people died of. But let's say if you look at you can actually look at mortality in care homes and it's very often respiratory viruses which were, were hardly ever looked at, were hardly diagnosed.
0: That's a great point. I mean I've read some series where even sort of the quote unquote normal coronavirus had eight percent lethality in, in care homes.
1: Yes, it's not. It's it's yes. They they're far from from harmless mm-hmm. in elderly people. So I think it might just be a feature of the less aggressive respiratory viruses. We have about two hundred in circulation, and and it's true that no one cared recently. <laughs>
0: yeah, hard to say. Nobody. Yes, I think that that is one of the challenges here. Um. The origin of the virus. I wonder if you might give us your thoughts on this. I mean, it's a. I mean, it's a. To, it's a hot topic. Um. Uh, my understanding is that um. With SARS-CoV one, uh, the original SARS, um, that we were able to identify it circulating in sort of the animal reservoir, um, sort of just three, four, five months into the pandemic, um, or uh, the epidemic. Um. Here. Um. You know. Um. Th- that that part is open. And there's this question of lab leak. Um, there's also a lot of people who say even to raise the topic of lab leak is is um, uh, not dignified. Um, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, one interesting thing is that I think everyone would agree that we know the origin of SARS-CoV-1 or say, of the SARS epidemic. But actually the closest relative mm-hmm. that has been found in um, bat- wild bat populations is about the same is about as related or as unrelated as the closest bat virus we have for SARS CoV 2. I see. I see. So you could say, I we've see. never really found the source for SARS CoV 1. Or we could say, well, we've actually found the source for SARS
0: CoV 2. Fair point. Fair point. OK. <laughs> it should be consistent.
1: It, yes. It's interesting. I, I hadn't noticed that myself. Actually, I realized that quite recently. I was like, Whoa. I actually, yes. <laughs> now, uh, Obviously, since um, there was an outbreak in 2003, we know of about 8,000 people who were infected. Mortality was quite high, about 750 people died. There might have been a few asymptomatics, but it was still close to 10% mortality. But it didn't obviously lead to, to, to the kind of massive pandemic. And probably people were kind of satisfied, oh, we came from bats.
0: Yeah, okay. <laughs> we,
1: Given the impact
0: of yes. COVID
1: nineteen, yes. might satisfy no one.
0: Yes, <laughs> it might satisfy no one. Yes.
1: So, I, I would say cov two. To me, it looks fairly unremarkable. Now, obviously, it would be very satisfying to to have something that looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. That's in bats, they um, have fairly close relatives. Will we ever find the actual immediate ancestor? I don't know. And and then, obviously, given the situation, people wonder whether they might have escaped from lab, or they might have created the lab. So I personally don't even see much evidence for recombination. So that you, earlier on, lots I of stories about pangolins and whatever. Yes, right. I always, I never fully understood the pangolins. <laughs> Me neither.
0: <laughs> I always like to say, yeah, I always like to make a joke that I was doing pangolin research, but I never fully understood the pangolins. Yeah, go on. Yeah. The story but, I heard but, was bat to pangolin to person in wet market. Yeah.
1: Yeah, something very complicated. Yeah, very which, complicated. Which I never fully understood
0: so yeah i mean i think that's well put um and and i di- I, I don't think i had fully appreciated. it so i mean i think if if the point you're making is that the variation in the circulating genome in bat to the original sars is the same as the variation in bat to sars CoV 2 then you really do have people in a conundrum so I, I mean you have to be consistent in terms of what is the cons- what is the overlap you need to say it came from x should be the same in both in principle in principle yeah
1: so, I think, but I, I, think it's probably fair to say that the moment we didn't identify the zoonotic source for either, or the immediate zoonotic right. source.
0: That's we, fair we to say.
1: We have things that are pretty related, but then they're, they're not the same. No, there's a huge diversity of coronaviruses they found in, in, not just in bats, they found in all sorts of mammals, but also in birds and, and they say they're very widespread and they were poorly studied until recently. So, uh, I'm not really, I, I think there's a fair chance we'll find something closer. Now, that doesn't say anything about whether it was a lab escape.
0: Or yes, absolutely.
1: right. So, um, so lab escapes can happen. They have happened. Um, probably the most famous story is um, the 1918 uh, influenza uh, virus, which was in circulation between 1919 and mm-hmm. uh, 1957 where it was kind of displaced by uh, the 1957 uh, strain but then it reappeared 20 years later in 77 and it's not had not been seen for 20 years and it was back Mm -hmm. and it was really the same than the one that had vanished in 57 Mm. and the the kind of suspicion is more than suspicion is that it it kind of escaped accidentally from 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 a lab i see so these things
0: can happen. Yes. Um, and I guess time will be the adjudicator there. Um, and maybe some more I, research, yeah.
1: I'm not sure we'll uh, ever know.
0: You, uh, you're not sure we'll ever know, okay.
1: <laughs> to some extent, it doesn't matter so much. I know, because... it doesn't
0: matter. Right, I know. To some, that's what I think. To some <laughs> extent, it doesn't matter. Let me ask you about the vaccine. Um, mRNA vaccine platform was obviously new prior to this. I've been quite impressed. I mean, I was, I was, uh, I, you, if you had asked me in January, um, will we have an um, authorized vaccine by um, December, I would have been skeptical. Um, and I was impressed both by the speed of development and by um, the efficacy of the vaccine. I wonder, I don't know, how do you think about the vaccine? Um, are you worried about vaccine escape, uh, that the virus will undergo mutations that prevent the vaccine from having efficacy?
1: I wouldn't say I'm worried, but I think we we have to prepare ourselves that okay. the let's say there, there will be emergence of lineages that bypass at least in part the um, immunization often by the vaccine, and and if we think about for instance, influenza, we let's say everyone who needs um, vaccination gets a jab every year, and. Um, so in a sense, I I, I don't expect well, we don't SARS-CoV-2 is not likely to to evolve at the same rate. Um, so it's a bit slower for a series of reasons. Um, but I think it was always clear that we would have to revaccinate people every three, maybe two to four years. And actually, even in the absence of evolution, it's a bit unclear. For how long, let's say, immunization—at least sterilizing immunization—lasts for, um, for for coronavirus vaccine, we have no um, real idea. But I think it's probably fair to assume that it might be a bit longer than immunization conferred by natural immunity, but not
0: orders of magnitude longer. So I, I think Probably in line, roughly. So and what I, think I
1: mean. Yeah, no, I mean,
0: one of the claims early on was that immunization by natural immunity will be very short-lived, like months. Uh, you were always skeptical of that from a very early standpoint because we had data from uh, SARS, the original SARS and MERS, that you could detect antibodies even years later.
1: Um, it's a bit, of, the literature is a bit mixed. And okay. if, if you base it on the endemic human coronaviruses. There's some old literature that suggests it doesn't last for that long. And um, for SARS-CoV-1, we don't really know because it didn't last. <laughs> it wasn't around for very long. <laughs> yeah. MERS, there's some evidence, but it all pointed to relatively fast waning antibodies, but probably fairly long-lived um, T-cell immunity. But I, I think one... Big problem why this this discussion was a bit confusing is that when people talk about immunity, they talk about different things, um, and I think for many people, immunity is really uh, let's say precluding completely infections, and that's neutralizing antibodies. But these don't tend to last for very long for, right. for right. most most pathogens, right. and then <laughs> discussion went a bit wild, because then some people felt that T cell were, we would all be saved by T cells, which is kind of, and then T cells became political. And then the
0: whole, <laughs> I know, right.
1: Insane. <laughs> 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 but I, I think fundamentally, it's important to, to kind of distinguish between, let's say, the immunization that protects you from infection and the immunization that, that helps you limit the symptoms and deal with, with the infection. And... And I would say sterilizing immunity like the one that obviously people really dream of um, is not that long lasting. I would say uh, probably one to two years based on on endemic coronavirus. But obviously with, like everything, biology distribution around it. So some cases of earlier infections on some people being protected for longer. But I think the really key message here is not that because you can be reinfected that you will be Nicely, as ill, see. every subsequent infection is expected to be far milder and probably asymptomatic. So if people, <laughs> it sounds a bit brutal, but let's say if people get infected once or twice, then essentially they probably won't struggle much with the
0: symptoms. That's well, and 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 that's and we can't forget that the thing about this virus that is problematic is not getting the virus, not the PCR, it's that some fraction of people experience terrible outcomes, and that's the problem. And if we can mitigate, if we get rid of that, then the virus, the fangs are removed from the snake. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask so you.
1: Yeah. Obviously really difficult, and, and I have a lot of sympathy for people who find this unacceptable. Um, but it is the way with in dealing with tense, and actually more, yeah, actually close to 200 respiratory viruses in circulation
0: right Right. i know i yeah i mean You know, prior to this year, we, I I would, I mean, I would always get sick and I would never think too often about what exactly it was. And I didn't know. And then maybe a few, maybe 10 years ago in the hospitals, we got in the habit of having sort of eight different viruses we would routinely, you know, check for. And then we started to get a sense of rhino, Corona, uh, all all the sort of classic respiratory um, viruses. And, and they, you know, and, and when people came in sick, there were patterns of it. They were, you know, it was all rhinovirus for a few weeks and then it was all coronavirus, you know, so it would have, it would have that, um, that sort of pattern over the winter. I wonder if you might talk about something sort of above all this. Um, we can come back to some of the the B. one. one. seven in a minute, but um, I wonder if you might talk about. Um I don't know. Um, there are definitely different philosophical camps that have been staked out. And you mentioned Neil Ferguson earlier. I think he comes in one camp. Um, my understanding is that even he, you know, he said in a recent interview, he was surprised that you could even institute lockdowns in, in the West um, that maybe 10 years ago. And I've read some papers from Pandemic Preparedness 10 years ago, and they did not have lockdown as uh, one of their ideas because they, they really thought it was not, you couldn't even do it in a free society that people wouldn't abide by it. Um, but yet we saw China do it in wuhan and 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 we tried and we have certainly done it a few times to different degrees of success um there's an so and 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 then there's another and and in along i put neil along with next two people who are the drafters and signatories of john snow memorandum who really wanted to do a lot of um restrictions until we can come up with vi- uh, vaccine um on the other end of the sort of philosophical spectrum there are people um john uniti as we know well um you know, who came out early um, with sort of an analogy that uh, like the elephant and the mouse, uh, you know, uh, the elephant can jump off the the, the cliff to avoid some threat. Um, And that, you know, it's possible that some of these interventions um, have deep downsides that you don't fully anticipate. Um, And in that camp, I think next to him, um, I don't, I think they're all, all these people are different people with different views. Um, you know, people who signed the Great Barrington Declaration, people who believe that, um, you should try to isolate, protect the people who are vulnerable and, 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 and let the virus go from there. And, and I think I've been critical of both ends of this. I mean, I've been critical of all of these people. Um, um, but I guess I'm curious about, um your views about like the nature of scientific discussion. I mean, I've been, I haven't i have had as long a career as as you have, but I've been in science and medicine for 15 years. And I've been in many issues where people did not like the other opi- people's opinions from cancer screening to should we sequence cancer tumors to this drug or that drug. And it can get, you know, it gets heated, but it's always only like only 10 people care about it. And, and then at, when, at night, when you go to the bar, you can have a drink and, you know, people can have a laugh, you know. Um, this is the one time I've seen... You you know, we can't go to the bar and have a drink and have a laugh. And so it's just the heating, the heatedness, And people say that, you know, folks on this side want to kill people. Folks on that side want to um, be totalitarians. Um, I wonder, you know, how you feel about just the nature with, with science. I feel like, you know, this is something you may feel have some strong feelings on. How do you feel about how science and discourse is happening right now?
1: Well, it's been pretty terrible,
0: <laughs>
1: and maybe one reason is that we can't go to the bar to have a drink. Yeah. So I think um, the fact that these discussions were entirely online yes. uh, might not have helped actually yeah. the tone. And obviously, there's a lot of passion, there's a lot of anger, and it's the first time actually I've I've seen scientific discussion losing any scientific aspect
0: yeah. um, <laughs> me too yeah. yeah yeah
1: and i'm not sure it's the right it, it's it's been obviously very heated it's been very dogmatic i lost friends over let's say i lost friends over things like you no know, this herd immunity built up to um, respiratory viruses which <laughs> We <laughs> say okay. Well if you lose a friendship over that, it's just like it's insane.
0: It's insane, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. It's insane, yes. And and but obviously I, I think it the pandemic has really affected all relationships, all aspects of society, it's not just scientists, I assume, it's it's people Generally, um, getting very upset and having different views, seeing different priorities, seeing different costs, seeing different risks. Who find it very difficult to strike an agreement on what is moral, what is ethical, and it is difficult. And from the very beginning, I I thought it would be very difficult to find solutions, or let's say, simple solutions, and. I saw the trade-offs, and, and the trade-offs are still here. And it really depends on what you value and what's going Let's say, what's the value of a child in Africa? What's the value of an education of a child in the same country? What's the value of the life of a person who's 80 years old? What's the, and so on. And I don't think, actually, you can try to quantify these things, but... It doesn't change the problem. It's a moral and ethical problem, and you cannot really quantify the value of education versus a year of life. Yeah. It's just impossible. And, and I cannot see any <laughs> agreement being reached, uh, let's say, through logic or science. And to some extent, the whole problem is not the scientific problem.
0: I agree. You know, I was reading some books over the summer, and maybe this is what shapes a lot of my perspective, but these were books about um, Europe from roughly 1915 to roughly 1935. And, of course, um, you know, Europe was laid siege with the First World War. Um, and then after the First World War, um, there was a serious resentment. Um, there were winners in the war, and there were losers of the war. Um, and and then there was a period of economic stagnation um, felt in part, um, by some of the people who lost the war. Um, And there were restrictions from the Treaty of Versailles that persisted. Um, And so you had a population that I think was feeling um, the resentment for a war that, um, you know, obviously touched so many people and led to so many loss of life. Um, Economic and upward mobility was stagnating. And in such a setting, you know, I think that's the setting for autocrats, for populism, for dictators, for, for evil Um, in the hearts of men, when we let the base instincts take over, and in fact, that is in fact what happened, you know, in the 1920s. Um, Although people don't see it now, or many deny that it may happen, um, when you close schools, when you let um, a million people, a bi- maybe a billion people, um, have unchecked tuberculosis, um, when you let people starve, um, when, you, when you strangle society and you squeeze harder on the poor people, um, which is what lockdowns do, whether anyone wants to, to do that or not, it squeezes harder on poor people, um, and wealthy people have it quite, quite nice right now. It's not so bad. Um, when you do that, um, you don't just pay the price that year. When you take the grip off um, and you let the world go back, the kids are not going to be the same. There's going to be, I think, a, a dip in educational outcomes and upward mobility, an increase in child pregnancy, an increase in um, a gun violence in this country. You know, we're a nation that's dealing with even more challenges. Um, in such a setting, I think that's where the bad things happen. So I guess, like, I'm worried that in the next decade, our country is in political turmoil. You need some, a, a disciplined populist a totalitarian kind of person who points to the other and says they're the reason, they're the problem. Um, they have uh, sort of the red carpet laid out for them. They have all the preconditions. I wonder if you think about this at all, how... These choices are not just viral choices; um, they're societal choices. I mean, you alluded to it a little bit, but they're they're political choices. They're choices that I fear. Um, you know, I fear this will be the most consequential year of the um, of the hundred years. Um, it's going to be a year that defines this whole. My whole life will be defined by this year and the consequences.
1: Well, you raised some interesting questions, and I I also thought a lot about let's say the legacy and 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 let's say particularly the resentment and uh, I. I'm actually surprised that particularly the younger generation don't feel more resentful. While we're seeing now some kind of riots, for instance, at the moment in Mm the Netherlands. And I'm actually surprised that there are any teenagers who are not rioting (laughs) to some extent. Mm -hmm. But it's, I'm not sure the legacy of the pandemic would be very similar to war. And I think it depends a lot what will happen next. for instance one interesting historical precedent is the 1918-19 yeah. pandemic actually killed far more people yes, than first yes mm-hmm. and it was immediately forgotten ignored now whatever the 20s were complicated period but let's say still soon after the pandemic there was this feeling it, it was a very interesting period but let's say it was not all doom and gloom and I think it, I personally think the pandemic will be over, I say, in its pandemic stage this year. There might be, obviously, there will be, let's say, outbreaks and flares in, in the winters to come. But I think actually the narrative, looking historically, will probably conclude that the pandemic ended more or less in 2021 in the summer, the fall, something like that. And I think it really, it it's very unpredictable what dynamic it will create obviously it's create immense inequalities um it's fed into incredible frustration but there might also be an elation a sense actually of a new future a new dawn and i think it will be quite interesting how different countries will deal with that and surprisingly maybe i think like the us is extremely well placed mm. The reason why they're extremely well placed first is obviously the pandemic is raging, but let's say by the summer, irrespective of vaccine programs, let's say there will be 60, 70% of people will be immunized. So essentially it will go down. And the beauty of the US situation is that actually all the blame can be laid on the previous government. Yes. Where things are getting better. Yes. And essentially yeah. the people in power, Cannot, are not blamed for what went wrong. Yeah. So I'm actually quite optimistic about the future of the US. Mm. I'm, I'm far less optimistic about countries that are in a similar situation where the governments will be in place for three or four years mm-hmm. because it's difficult to, to have some kind of sense of closure mm-hmm. if you still have the same leaders people feel have failed them. Yes. So I think the timing was pretty good. That's well put. So it was—it was really bad idea to stage a pandemic in a U.S. election year. But actually, thats, that's stupid.
0: Not that I mean, I, I i don't know if historians will someday say this, but um, I think it changed the outcome. I mean, I think this guy—he would have won otherwise. I think. Um, and um, he still came. I, I, I you know, I, 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 he still came very close. I mean, seventy-four million votes. Um, despite what he had done. Um. I don't know. I, I think it might have tipped it over. I don't know. You have some thoughts. You think maybe it would have gone this yeah.
1: Maybe. I think I think part of the electorate was probably worried about very strong, very strange Response mitigation to it. Yeah. measures. Mm-hmm. Um I I'm not sure well, it's, it's obviously difficult to know. Yes. But I, I think. Well, I might not be the best person to comment on that. But I would not be surprised if a part of the population voted for Trump, actually, because of the relatively weak um, response COVID measures, rather than this <laughs>
0: point. Interesting, interesting. Well, that's what that's. It not, was also yeah, yeah.
1: the attitude was different in the summer. Now, obviously, yes, people yes. in peak pandemics, so yes. the attitude is a bit different. Yes, that's well put.
0: Okay, last point, last question, then I'll let you go. Um b okay. b.1.1.7. 1. 1. Um, I mean I think you already alluded to this a little bit. When I when I when I pulled the data and looked at it myself and I looked at um, sort of I think the first report, uh, the, the first large report from from the UK it, it, it uh, This was a fact that jumped out at me was that in contact tracing, there was a 15% chance that somebody would acquire B.1.1.7 1. 1. versus 11% if you had a non, um, quote unquote, S gene dropout um, strain. Um, and and that relative difference was 1.36. Um, and there are lots of ways you can tell that. I mean, when I tell that to people on the phone, I say 15% versus 11% transmission rate. And it's, they say, oh, okay
1: that sucks <laughs> you know
0: it'd be better if it was lower about 15 to 11 okay you could also tell it like 40 percent more transmissible <laughs> that's the way they like to say it um but the point you're making that i hadn't thought about is your your point is that it had existed in september and it didn't blow up until very recently as being the dominant species so stochastic processes randomness has something to do with it in addition to transmissibility
1: well i, I think Definitely. So, for instance, the the number in in the early stage of the pandemic in in one March or so, there have been at least 1000 different, more than 1000, let's say 1000 measured introductions of the virus in the UK. And actually very, very few of these lineages made it. So there's huge plasticity. And it's not entirely, what I find remarkable, obviously, is that this B107 was for, so, was around for so long, but didn't go extinct. Now, obviously, it didn't go extinct because it's still here, so it's ancestor, didn't go extinct. Yes. But maybe we're seeing these kind of strains appearing quite often, but most of them don't make it because just the, the kind of heterogeneity in the transmission, transmission dynamic is too high. Mm. Then one thing I find quite intriguing is that we have no idea how it might be more transmissible. So there's good evidence, yes, it transmits better. It's not just in the UK. It's been introduced in Denmark. It's going up in frequency. The numbers are debated. Is it 20%, 30%? It's definitely not 70%, but um, who knows? But then how? (laughs) Also, one very mysterious thing is None of the mutations in this strain are new. We've seen them all since March, April. We've seen them all sorts of different backgrounds, multiple backgrounds, of mm-hmm. the, all sorts of lineages. So why suddenly, why did it take essentially a year for a new, more uh, accessible strain to emerge? Mm-hmm. And I, I've been spending most of my time now for weeks
0: thinking about it, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> of, all, of all the millions of people who've had COVID globally, what percent of people have had genomic sequencing? I mean, I guess one thought is, like, how much of this do we even see? Of all, I mean, many people have it detected. They say you have COVID, and then they go off. We no one sequences. Like, how many? Yeah.
1: So it, it depends a lot on the countries. So there are two countries that sequence a lot. That's yes. the UK and Denmark. So Denmark are close to sequencing half the diagnosed cases and the UK must be something like close to 10%. Um, so we, we do have lots of genomes. And also this strain, they say it got picked up because the, the most widely used diagnostic RDPCR test actually has this S drop out because the probe, um, let's say the region that, that hybridizes with the probe has a little deletion. That makes it, um, so I think we, we have good numbers on these. It's not so much the numbers that the mysterious, it's more the dynamic. It's actually even more mysterious than I said because it was around for a very long time, nothing happened. Then it, it grew like crazy. And it's true, this 50-70% higher transmission rate, actually, they are genuine if you fit a lot uh, the exponential to this part of the curve. And then now it seems to be kind of plateauing. It's not taking over the UK. Why? Yes. I, I, I really, really find it pretty mysterious. <laughs> mm. Um and you would have to invoke, let's say, maybe the situation changed as one possibility, or it's just more transmissible in certain contexts, certain people. It's, it's really, really mysterious. And it shows actually how little we seem to understand about some of the fairly basic uh, features of, of the epidemic.
0: That's fascinating. <laughs> Francois below this is an uh, you know a really great discussion. I thank you so much for your time. you're you're a busy person. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people um, have appreciated that throughout this pandemic, um, you've you stayed, I think first and foremost, a scientist and um, and I think second, um, someone who um, thinks explicitly about trade-offs and and the challenges faced by all people. Um, and so I really I really have enjoyed reading your stuff and and hearing your voice throughout all this. So thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you very much. And it's mutual. Yes, I I really enjoy following you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers.
0: You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.